0: Okay, take it away. Got it. Awesome. Hopefully you can hear me. Can you hear me okay? If not, I'll just project anyway. Well, good evening, everyone. Like Tess said, I'm Lynette. I'm thrilled to be here tonight. And um, I really picked some awesome chapters now, didn't I? (laughs) Last year in the beginning, or last time in the beginning half, but um, I love a challenge. So you know, we are always challenged by God's word, and and, um, I accept that challenge. Chapter Um, (laughs) twenty-three. So let's dig in. Um, And I appreciate all of your attentiveness, and thank you for being true to God's um, command to be in His word. And I I hope that um, the, the message that I have tonight just gives you something to reflect on, because as awkward and and confusing and challenging as God's word can be sometimes we know that there's always nuggets in there that help us grow in our faith and help bring us closer to him and help us through times of joy and and times of adversity. So um, again, tonight we're gonna recap and reflect on the message from Ezekiel chapters 19 through 24. Um, And I hope it'll help our strength and our ability to recognize um, and repent of our sins and motivate us to prioritize the the necessary aspects of our spiritual life. So in week 5, we are still in the midst of Ezekiel prophesying to the people that God's judgment was nearing. Although God is patient, he is not mocked, and we can no longer and he can no longer tolerate this generation of sinful, unrepentant people. We certainly pick up on this as God describes the lewd and vile behaviors of idolatry, greed, thirst for power and blood, and despite his people thinking that the holy temple was safe and God's presence would never depart, God calls out their vilest offenses by likening them to an unfaithful wives and prostitutes whose laundry list of sexual immorality was a bit uncomfortable to read through. Um, And for added perspective, we cannot forget that God's promise that if the wicked do turn away from their sins and repent, that God will forgive them and forget their sin, even if they were wrapped up in that list um, <laughs> that we read about in chapter 23. So the problem is that no one at this time of, Ezekiel, of Ezekiel's ministry was willing to turn away. And at the close of this week's scripture in chapter 24, God makes good on His promise to destroy um, to desto- destroy them at the hands of the pagan nations, so that they so that they so desired to be like. Um, And with the added punch of even removing himself from the temple. So as you probably noticed, the book of Ezekiel is a bit challenging to read as it requires untangling the poetic language from the literal actions of God, Ezekiel, the people Ezekiel is speaking to, and their ancestors. Um, So I hope a quick recap um, will help you take away some things uh, that will be a little bit enlightening for your discussion groups tonight. So chapter 1 covers chapter 19, or day 1 covers chapter 19. It was entitled King of the Jungle. Um, And it was interesting because at the start of this, as soon as they talk about a lion in Judah, of course, you know, we're thinking about, you know, Jesus and the alliterations that we take from that um, possible perspective. But this was a little bit different. Um, In chapter 1, Ezekiel is eulogizing in prophetic form the last declining years of Judah. Um, with this lamentation. Judah is likened into a lioness that trains her young cubs in savagery. At this time, Judah is enduring a legacy of leaders that have turned from God and mistreated the people and their own power by taxing, oppressing, and preying on them to manage their prestige, to manage and maintain their prestige. So just to look back um, to understand the, the cub references, King Josiah, a righteous king before God, had reigned but was killed in Megiddo by Pharaoh Necho of Egypt. After Josiah's death, the people appointed Jehoahaz, um, Josiah's son, and that was reference of the first cub. But Pharaoh Necho had a chip against Jehoahaz and tossed him into the wilderness and appointed Jehoiakim. And you would think that this would probably be in line to be the second cub, but um, not because he was appointed by an Egyptian king. So that was kind of a little bit out of the lineage of um, what was referenced in scripture. Um, Jehoiakim was also evil, taxing people and preying on them to maintain his power. Um, And Pharaoh, for a while, was a little unbothered by Jehoiakim, and probably because he might have been benefiting some way um, or getting a cut from Jehoiakim's shady practices. We don't know. But um, there's another problem facing Jehoiakim, and that's the Babylonians. Um, So Nebuchadnezzar comes in, captures Jehoiakim, takes him as a prisoner, and now Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiachin, becomes king. And this is the second cub that's referenced. But only for three months, Nebuchadnezzar besieges Jerusalem and carries away Jehoiachin and and several thousand others. And the next in line is Zedekiah, Jehoiakim's uncle is appointed by Nebuchadnezzar uh, as the next king. So Zedekiah perpetuated the abuse of power and idol worship, further elevating God's righteous anger. And that puts us right about the time of where we're hearing Ezekiel's lamentation. Zedekiah is currently the king and God points out to Ezekiel that though Judah is as strong as a lion, she will be captured in the snare of the Babylonians. God would thrust him from his presence, and Zedekiah was the last of Judah's kings to sit on the throne, and not until Christ comes to reign will a king from the land of Judah arise. This sets the stage for much-needed purification. Um, And as the author states, one of the hardest truths about revival is that it often requires a death of some sort before a new life can start again, and sometimes the pathway to revival is painful." And we will see at the conclusion of this week's study when Ezekiel is faced with a tragic loss. So we go from lions and lion, lionesses and lion cubs to vines and branches, and a chapter or in verses 10 through 14. Here Judah is likened to a very fruitful vine. It's strong, and its branches are like are the kings. And Judah rose to great glory, particularly in the reigns of David and Solomon. But its end came like a scorching east wind, and this vine was Babylon. It was strong. It was the last strong and the last strong vine was Zedekiah. The fire took out the branch, which led to the destruction of the vine, which was Judah. The vine, Judah, had a a terrible end. It was plucked up by Babylon, and then it was transplanted into the wilderness. The rod and the branches reference Zedekiah, who should have been Judah's benefactor, but instead became the fire that led to its destruction. The the vine imagery used in this lamentation expresses God's sorrow over Judah's fall into into fruitlessness as a nation after giving her so much. So we shouldn't miss the fact that Judah is no longer a mighty nation because we shouldn't miss the fact that Judah is now no longer a mighty nation because of the choices that it made. The reproach that Judah has become because of their actions of the people and the choices, the personal choices that they have made. This is a very strong reminder as how our unrepentant heart and our numbness to sin creates a separation from the Lord and self-destruction. So as a quick self-reflection... I made It made me ponder as I went through the study this, about the sins that I am either easy to justify or seem to have gotten comfortable with and um, also as another self reflection, I just felt that you know one thing that 's interesting about like our unrepented sin um, or the ones that we 're not comfortable giving up is that we often have a way to talk ourselves through them um, and just simply the fact that we have to lean into a justification for our behavior is usually indicative that we are straddling that fence between stepping over into the yard of disobedience. Mm. Um, in chapter, or day two, it chap- covers chapter 20. Um, I, yeah. I, uh, you- I, you- should be fine. Okay, I am fine. And whoever's listening to this recording is going to think that was me singing that beautiful little song there. All good. All right, we've got it on tape, friends. All right, so chapter 20 is history lesson. So on day two, the elders come to Ezekiel to inquire of the Lord, but the Lord refuses to hear them. He tells Ezekiel to speak words of judgment against them. And the Lord sees through the elders' insincerity and unrepentant hearts, as they are still partaking in their abominable ways. One thing about sin is that it can blind you so severely, you stop even seeing when you are committing the offense. It becomes normalized, and that is exactly how Satan wants it. A small crack can become a giant fissure that begins to divide us between our God. But the good news, of course, is in this condition, this condition can be reversed through repentance. Um, We learn that the elders, along with the nation of Israel, were not interested in letting go of their sin and don't seem to feel bothered by the prophetic judgment or the consequences of their sin. And this is a reminder to us that when we stop realizing that Satan is at work, he, Satan, has us exactly where he wants us. This was the condition of God's people. Satan had them completely blinded to how offensive their behavior was. In this section, God seems to focus on one law in particular, and maybe you picked it up as well, that he was rebuking uh, the exiles in stating that they had profaned his Sabbath. And it needed to be, it was intended to be a day of rest to fulfill his purposes for us and to provide for us for what we need. A Sabbath rest um, and reset was unique to the God of Israel. The gods of the Egyptians, the Canaanites, and and the Persians demanded care from their worshipers, and they didn't provide for the people. The people needed to provide for their gods. Um, Ezekiel reminds the elders of Israel's sinful history in this chapter that they were chosen by grace, yet they had a uniform pattern of rebellion against the Lord in not observing his ordinances, his statute, including the Sabbath, and continuing in idolatry. They're reminded that in the past, God spared inflicting judgment at this point, not because Israel's worthiness on their part, but to make himself known to the nations around them. Now judgment had finally come. Here we note that God had dispersed his children amongst the nations as a chastisement, elevating mankind's need for a savior. The observation of the Sabbath um, began at at Mount Sinai, and it served as a special sign between the people and and the Lord God. It showed their dependence on Him to supply their need by not working on the seventh day, and in turn God cared for them. Even today we honor the Sabbath because it allows us to reflect and recognize that all that we have comes from God, and it is a collective time to be still. It is an opportunity to search for revival in our hearts. Along with the many ways that God makes himself available to us, how wonderful is it that God clearly has a strategy by ordaining the Sabbath. And if you haven't before, I hope you now are able to see how special the Sabbath is as an ordinance created for you and God to grow closer. On day three, this covers chapters 21 through 22, it's the sword of the silver silversmith. Say that ten times fast. Um, Now the time of testing is over, and God offers no more opportunities to repent. Israel will feel the heaviness of Nebuchadnezzar's sword come against them, destroying them completely. Scripture is is stating here that the sword of our Lord will be wielded by Babylon against Israel. It is drawn from the sheath, sharpened, polished, ready for action, and will not be returned to the sheath until the task is completed. God is letting King Nebuchadnezzar, led by a false spirit, to accomplish his will, as both King Zedekiah and the people despise the holy things of the Lord. The moral decay that they are indicted of spans serving idols, bloodshed, sexual perversion, greed, material gain at any cost, putting material above the spiritual, all because they have forgotten uh, the Lord and his provision. Actually, at this point, all segments of the social structure had become really involved in this decay. It was other prophets, it was priests, it was princes, it was all the people. It was so terrible and so widespread um, that God identified them as heathen, and as well, we'll soon see that they kind of dropped and become dubbed as prostitutes <clears throat> as a nation. Um, we understand God's justified anger and use as he uses the imagery of silversmithing. The nation of Israel is, was called the dross, which is the worthless impurities left after the refining of silver. They no longer rep- were rep- representing the holiness of God instead of being glory, strength, and examples to the nations around them, they became like the straws. In the destruction of Judah, the office of the king and the prophet were both removed, and they would not be restored until Lord Jesus Christ, who will be both priest and king in the in the next kingdom, returns. Okay. So day four, here we are, with the tale of two sisters, chapter 23. So Ezekiel gives a no doubt clear picture poetic picture of the apostasy or the abandonment of Israel and Samaria from God, their joint wickedness together, and the joint ruin of them both. The Hebrew prophets often compared the sin of idolatry to the sin of adultery, and I can understand that correlation because adultery is rooted in a desire to serve oneself without regard to their spouse, and with idolatry, it is also rooted in personal desires, so to, so to further appreciate this rhetorical figure of the prostitute. And I think you'll agree that the commentary and the visual in, images conjured up in this chapter really portray the level of decay that sin can create and the depravity of Israel's character so that we can understand God's repulsion at this time and not be confused by his justified anger and action against them although he had once had, has referred to them as his chosen people. Um, this portion of scripture is a metaphor of two sisters. Um, some scholars believe that they were either married to God or the daughters of God um, in this situation or assimilation or in the metaphor, um, who turned their back on either their father or their husband, forgetting all the love that he has bestowed on them. The two sisters mentioned in this chapter are pejorative personifications given by the prophet Ezekiel to the cities of Samaria in the kingdom of Israel and Jerusalem in the kingdom of Judah, respectively. We see them giving into their lust, being objectified, defiled, defiled, and finding no peace or satisfaction in their whoresome lifestyle, which is really no shock, right? Right. Um, There they were easily baited by material things, enamored with the love of fame and attention, pleasure and riches. The height of their infidelity was giving their love to other gods in worship, taking the children that the Lord calls them their own and sacrificing them to Molech, who was a Canaanite god that children were literally sacrificed to. The defilement was jaw-dropping. When Israel was brought out of Egypt, God's mighty hand into the and by God's mighty hand into this land he prepared for them. They were to be a people separated from the nations around them. And all the other tribes in the land were to be exterminated because of their gross wickedness and prevailing idolatry. But unfortunately, God's people chose to court these nations by assimilating to their evil ways which led to the captivity of the northern captivity by the northern tribes of the Assyrians. So throughout this chapter the sin of both the northern and the southern kingdoms are enumerated to help us remember that idolatry is one of the highest offenses to our Lord and it is definitely worth examining the idols in our lives. And no doubt we can see how consistent spiritual infidelity can lead to the inevitable consequences that destroy our relationship with God and others. The tale of the two sisters show us the progression of sin and the desires of our own flesh will never leave us satisfied. Satan will try to entice us just as the Israelites had everything they needed in God's provision, but they wanted more. They wanted to have the power of the Assyrians, the wealth of the Babylon, and it did not satisfy. It left them hungry for more fleshly desires and left them literally disgusted with themselves. The book of Ezekiel provides the reminder that the wages of sin are death, and maybe not always a physical death, but the death of our relationship with God, and it separates us and it grieves him. Friends Satan doesn't care how you feel doesn't care that you feel the weight or the burden or the shame of sin. He will lock you into it. But God does understand how painful this separation is from him. We must take responsibility for our sin, or just like the two sisters, it can consume us. And God doesn't want that for us. Throughout this study, we hear how God wants for us to experience revival. By repenting and turning back to God, the darkest of our sins will be forgotten. And like the author of our study uh, stated at the close of day four, no matter how long that we walk with the Lord, we will battle desires that will entice us to pursue the pleasures apart from the Lord. We must constantly and humbly go before him, asking for discernment over these fleshly desires and remain in his word, just like you are all doing now um this takes us to day five which was entitled don't shed a tear uh, which covers chapter 24. and on day five the lord tells ezekiel to write this day down because this was the judge the day that judgment was befalling jerusalem over a span of nearly five years ezekiel prophesied the destruction of jerusalem Now the parable of the boiling pot was acted out in Babylon on the very day of the siege, illustrating the destruction of the city. On that day, Nebuchadnezzar took a surprise siege of the city, and Ezekiel had full knowledge of this from the Lord, even though he was 300 miles away from the scene. Terrifying judgment is presented by means of a parable and a sign. Ezekiel is to make a stew, the choice pieces of meat representing the leaders in the pot. Not drained of the blood, the meat was not drained of the blood, which was the scum that contaminates the contents. You can see this kind of alliteration, poetic alliteration here. But they are all taken away of the protection of the fire or judgment, are taken out of the way from the protection of fire and judgment, um, illuminating God's removal from the temple. Um, and iterating that God, or because of its wickedness, even the pot representing Jerusalem is consumed in the fire of judgment. God is turning up the fire on everyone now. They were no longer a light to the nations around them. They and the meat, the scum, were all poured out, and then the pot destroyed, leaving only the purified remnant, um, who will return and follow the Lord eventually. When we look at our own lives, we can only ponder the sins that are unconfessed and unaddressed because we don't want to wind up like this scum. Um, then, as if these chapters that we had previously read and this one weren't challenging enough, we learn of Ezekiel as told by God in verses 15 through 18 that his wife will die and he is to not visibly mourn her as another sign to the people around him. How hard this must have been on top of all the other personal sacrifices that Ezekiel has made during this ministry. How can we make sense of this? And God uses this symbolism to the people. Ezekiel's stoic behavior about his wife's passing represents God's refusal to grieve over Jerusalem's behavior anymore. And this is exactly what God is doing over the death of Jerusalem. God is unable to mourn the people he had once held so dear. Um, And then as we all read that the uh, people had the nerve to ask, tell us, why are you not caring about the death of your wife? And this just reinforces the hard-headed and hard-hearted state that this lot was in. And my guess is that the soon to occur events that are unfolding will probably help them understand exactly why. But currently, these people were the, under the impression that God's presence would never leave the temple and the city of Jerusalem would forever be safe. So as we conclude this overview of Ezekiel chapters 19 through 24, I hope this, there was an opportunity for us to consider what sins or fleshly behaviors or our, our, our idols that we are choosing not to lose. What have we talked ourselves through, or should I say, what has Satan talked to us into believing that is really harmless to our relationship with the Lord, when we really know that it needs to be purified and it needs to be cleaned out? If there is any unchecked sin in our lives, we must ponder that. And they are worth, are they worth the division and the pain that they could ultimately cost us? Think of the joys and the blessings that we might be missing because we cling to these sins tighter than we cling to the relationship with our Lord. The Israelites, as we saw, clung tighter to the customs and the depravities of the pagan nations around them, and they immersed themselves in the culture that they were supposed to be a light to for God's glory, but instead they were swept up in the sin, and it obviously did not work in their favor at the time. But we know God always has a plan, The refinement and the purging of sin at this time in history allowed for Judah's purification and paved the way for Christ to emerge from this tribe, continuing the legacy of our access to purification before God our Father. God is patient, but he is not a pushover, so we learned. Um, If you can't purge the sin on your own, God can and might intervene, and it might not be as comfortable So it might be best to exercise our free will in favor of God's blessing to honor him and not ourselves. There was a public service ad that some of you may have heard or seen up on billboards years ago. It said, do you know the easiest way to quit smoking? Don't start. I think that's the same way with sin. We should use our energy to prioritize the actions that bring us closer to God so we won't have to work so hard on getting rid of them the ones that pull us away from him. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be holy in front of you. We wanna be free from the idols that stand in the way of our relationship to you. You are a patient God and we are forever grateful for that. Your love for your children is immeasurable. Allow the study time tonight to be a tool for our personal revival. Help us to seek after you in everything that we do. Thank you for the prophet Ezekiel for his personal sacrifice, for his ministry, and the fact that you still speak through him today to teach us. Lord, I ask your blessing for this time together, the safety of all of these women's drive home and bring us together again next week. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everyone. I don't know how to turn. Thanks, everybody. I hope when you turn your line up, like you do turn it off. I hope not. I, think I that, can just reread it. And, okay. Good.